You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 160 of a Life Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers and research of those living life ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-host, Connor Johnnan and David Howe. This week, it is uh, the three of us are back together, and we are going to discuss a paper that recently just came out of American antiquity. And the title of that paper, I'm sure those within the archaeology realm have seen this, is The Injury Costs of Napping by Gala at All. And napping spelled K-N-A-P-P-I-N-G, not napping as in what I was just doing before this podcast, taking a little snooze. <laughs> and this caught our attention because, you know, David has recently just came in from a came back, sorry, from a nap in. And the three of us have spent a fair amount of time around flint nappers during our time at the University of Wyoming and continue to, you know, we're always napper adjacent in some way, shape or form. I like that. There's three primary skills of archaeology, stones, bones and uh, pots. And when you're in departments that specifically research populations and culture prior to the development of ceramics, Get a lot of stones and bones, and usually those two are pretty fucking related, especially when you're at the University of Wyoming, where you're just looking at giant furry elephants and bison that have been cut the fuck up by stone tools in one way, shape, or form. So yeah. here, here we are with this paper. So, Connor, were you the one that shared this art, uh, article in the group chat first? Yeah, yeah. I um, I encountered it um, through some folks at work. These things get passed around through different medium people whatever i mean it's always the gossip goes around and this was given to me by uh charles koenig and you know it just it it struck our interest because it's it's an interesting principle an idea that's something that we kind of something that hasn't been talked about a, a crap ton in the literature i mean i think we all talked about it anecdotally like uh different informal locations but yeah so it caught my caught my attention i sent it off to you guys and as i kind of dive deeper into it i think we all had some questions yeah should i go ahead and read the uh the intro i think i'll, I'll try to take a stab at it yeah and, and mind you when we, when we looked at this the first name that popped out of this article was good old met and aaron who we've talked about on this podcast a couple of times now this was the same person that had an article that came out stating that like clovis points couldn't kill mammoths and me and conger tore this shit to shreds and so when we started looking at the author list, uh, you know, Gala et al., a lot of them are Aaron's, Matt and Aaron's like grad students, part of these previous studies. So like I looked at this and it's like, I have fucking questions because Aaron's tenure approach, quantity over quality of articles, like just fucking shotgun spread a bunch of science out there and get, get noticed. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's making he's making a splash in the, in archaeology because of it. I mean, he's taking topics that we might not have defined or talked about in the literature, and talking about them might not be in the most like theoretical and deepest kind of way. But he's bringing them up, which is a good yeah. good firing solution if you're going to try to be in academia is to hit topics that are un unpublished upon or and and do yeah. basic research on a whole bunch of this stuff. 
absolutely are finding journals that are not archaeology related. Like he published something on how like bison hooves can be turned into glue and submitted that to like the Journal of Glue. And <laughs> it revolutionized their journal because like that's just shit we know as archaeologists. But he's been really good at like finding non-archaeology journals, putting in archaeology content that most archaeologists kind of know about, but like getting it out and hitting those pubs up. But respect, honestly. Honestly, yeah. Great. David, what's the abstract? All right, so the abstract. For at least three million years, napping stone has been practiced by hominid societies, large and small, past and present. Thus, understanding napping, nappers, and napping cultures is fundamental to anthropological research around the world. Although there is a general sense that stone napping is inherently dangerous and can lead to injury, little is formally, specifically, or systematically known about the frequency, location, or severity of napping injuries. Toward this end, we conducted a 31-question survey of 31, 31 question survey, mind you, of modern nappers to better understand napping risks. Responses from 173 survey participants suggest that napping injuries are real and present hazard clear and present danger even though a majority of modern nappers use personal the word is persistent equipment. not present <laughs> oh, oh, oops <laughs> a variety of injuries over oh, lacerations punctures aches etc can occur on nearly any part of the body the severity of injury sustained by some of our participants is shocking and nearly one quarter of the respondents reported having sought or received professional medical attention for a flint napping related injury or flint napping adjacent. Overall, the results of this survey suggest that there would have been likely serious, even fatal, costs to nappers in the past. Such costs may have encouraged the development of any social learning capacities possessed by hominins or delayed the learning or exposure of young infants or children to napping. You know what would make the science about all their claims better? Science? Fucking biological and bioarchaeological <laughs> examination of hominin and like hunting and gathering societies fucking digits for lacerations. Yeah. None of that is present. This whole article is like we sent out a survey and we're just going to look at the responses. Mind you, as we've talked about in this podcast so many goddamn times, like modern people that flint nap as a hobby are not the same as people who had to do it as part of living. So really making these comparisons is not adequate. Yeah, and I so I think I think uh, taking the bioanth approach, really doing the skeletal analysis, but also you could consult the ethnographic record to see how folks were using stone in the past and even creating tools. I mean, that's that's a simpler step back and not as far, but you could talk about these things in a way that is better analogy than just modern humans. And there's none of that even mentioned in here. There's no archaeology in this paper until the very end of it. It's all just modern day analysis of flint napping. Yeah, it's just a BuzzFeed article. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a fucking BuzzFeed article. I'm sorry, I'm getting wound up by this article the more that I like look at. No, into. I mean I think it's great. It's a cool it's a cool thing to read. It's just like so bizarrely like simple yet so unnecessarily processual at the same time like i don't i don't know how it's to like, explain it i like the concept because we all have stories about like a friend or the time that we fucked up while flint napping and they took that concept but they didn't pass the baton like they pulled up all this data and there was like a part two of like we need to look at comparisons and they're just like no i mean for example there's a couple tables in here and this is where i got my first time I got pissed, like, what is your favorite prehistoric culture to replicate? Fucking canceled. And it's just like a list of shit. Who cares? At the end of it, it's like, this is a meaningless table. We don't need this. Table two, what artifact type do you prefer to produce the most? Also fucking meaningless. 
<laughs> but I, I would have liked to have seen like a follow-up article out of you know like which artifact type are you most able to produce that would have been like to, to at least illustrate the competency yeah, yeah. of the flint nappers that they have don't have that or a better question which ones have you broken something on or which ones have you cut yourself on yeah it's like very so specific what my favorite is my favorite thing to produce is an arrowhead have I ever fucking done it no speaking of it says what is your favorite prehistoric culture to replicate Fishtail, flakes, fulsome, general arrowheads, general bifaces, general blades, late prehistoric period. Like these things are, I mean, I get it is hard to quantify like or qualify what all of that. What the fuck does Plains Indian mean? Like that also, like there's Paleo Indian there and Folsom. Like there's 28 different types of things. Yeah, like that's crazy. I mean, <laughs> like summarize it, put it into like North American cultures put it into time periods do something that's besides the shotgun blast of like 28 different things that doesn't mean anything to me you know asian mesolithic like it's a danish neolithic like this is so bad like whoever came up with this table is another thing too though that like i don't see added in here is like (laughs) i just saw testicles in one of the tables (laughs) 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 that it doesn't say what stage reduction or what stage like they were at so like a giant giant spall like it's pretty easy not to cut yourself because you're cut like taking big giant flakes off but Mm -hmm. like the most times i've cut myself is doing very precise direct percussion on a small piece specifically usually obsidian or even pressure flaking i've like busted the palm of my hand open and that's not something at least that i saw on here mentioned but more so it just quantifies the where the pain is, uh, and like tolls and I've hit the troll toll feet, eyes, hams, nails, carpal tunnel, rear end, testicles, elbow, rear end. So I think the front part of this article, specifically these tables that we're talking about, doesn't really add a bunch or do anything for me. Table three, what is your preferred stone raw tool, like stone raw material to work? Flint. But then they list like eight other different kinds of flints. I guess it's just like general like, they don't remember but it wasn't like what and then first of all who the cult this is fucking america you're publishing an american antiquity it's called fucking chert you're like you're public Carlton. you should know better but i mean these are the same people that were fucking launching modern day arrowheads from a 30 pound bow and said you know what can't kill a mammoth so whoa 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 whoa, whoa. that's very personal still god Just, this is so stupid <laughs> okay what the fuck is republicanite it's a, a good question. Uh, send us a send us an email if you know what that is or if it's real. Oh, it actually says we we do not know exactly what is meant by Republicanite. Our best guess is Republican River Jasper, Nebraska. It is also known as Smoky Hill. So, no, all those are wrong. That I is think definitely not Wokalite. It's called Smoky <laughs> Hill Jasper. Yeah, but I do think this this first part, these first like three tables, highlights their like shotgun approach. So like thirty one questions about flint napping. Seems like ex- an excessive amount. Like I think David highlighted as part of that is just that you're gathering too much data at that point. I guess though too, when you're interviewing a bunch of people that don't necessarily practice science, like they're going to give you long-winded paragraphs of information. So like, how else would you kind of quantify all this stuff and put it into a table? Because it's like. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, I, I think you get you could give them survey options and and then other as well. I think that that would have been better. Yeah, yeah. I think there's there's good questions you can ask. It just seems like this is very qualitative answers. Then then are put into quantitative analysis. 
which is something that I think is hard for us to grasp. I want to know the competency of the people that submitted surveys like that's that's going to give me a lot more information and how to interpret the data. They did. Um, well, it does they say did mention that. level. Yeah, they said. What table is that? Let's see. The first participant information are napping habits. So they self-identify their napping skill ranging from novice to master. 26 of our respondents identified as novice, 29% intermediate, 52 or 30% as experienced. But what the fuck does that mean? 20% as expert and 4.62 as master. Well, that's the thing. It, it's all... It's a spectrum and it's all relative. I would personally call somebody a flint napper if they can reduce a biface down to a usable blank, I guess. But then a great flint napper, I'd say, can make clovis. I don't know. Like, I, there's yeah. no. And there's like consistency of it too. Being able to do it every time, I think, is something. Yeah. So, I mean, like for 50% of respondents, napping is done for educational research purposes, 36 is a hobby, and 10% listed for other reasons. Yeah, I don't it like that. I mean, that's the problem with like data collection. Like if you're survey, like I've seen bad surveys. And if you're just giving like a relative scale, which I don't know how Nicholas at all or Gala at all did this. It's like, did they have definitions for those skill levels? Because if not, that's problematic. Yeah, definitely. In my opinion, it's like I want to consider myself a novice. Like I know how to reduce a flake. Do I know how to make a stone tool? Like I could maybe make a scraper, but I have problems. I can't thin flakes yet. Yeah, and when do you when do you like go from a novice to an intermediate? Is that because is that the thinning flakes, it, or you know how how do you define that in a way that's no. replicable? Because some of these, you go to the table five, the variety of injuries reported by respondents. Like some of these, I'm like, <laughs> how the fuck did you do this? Like smack leg, got it? That I do that every time. Like I'm bashing. Okay, like, I'm always yeah. I always have bruises in my thighs. Cut wrists, yeah. deep cut. Deep cut to fingers, deep cuts to hand. Like, what is deep cut? Nearly uh, broken rib? How yeah, the fuck that. do you... Where's the genital part? Because someone talked about, like, what? The testicle uh, smack Broken testicles? rib would like, be... Like, that's someone not... Like, to me, that's that's a, a novice. Like, some of these injuries, I could be like, that's a novice. Like, when I, when I taught intro to archaeology for CU Boulder, and we had flint napping day, I can tell people who weren't paying the fuck attention based on their injuries. Or at least people mm-hmm. that had some sort of athletic ability in the past like i've never bashed my fingers in like i've never missed the rock or like hit my knee like there's and i've never seen an expert do that shit like the worst injury i've ever got was when i was flint napping obsidian in fucking chacos yeah that's my worst experience too yeah got right up in there took a step right through my foot yeah i've seen people lacerate the hell out of their fingers before i i haven't i mean i'd get cuts I would say nearly broken rib is either from like a miss swing with a billet or some kind of issue with an indirect stick or a punch. Like yeah. you just fell on it or something. I, I don't know. Yeah, I could see that. Same thing with these tables. Like they start big and they give you all this information and then they just keep narrowing it down. Why don't you just give me like the summarized information? I don't know what good the smash testicle does for me. Got a story about that, but that we should take into the next segment. And welcome back to episode 160. We're still here talking about Galette, our all article. It's not that, like, they have an interesting question, like, that definitely we are, we absolutely get injuries in the, in the present when we're replicating stone tool industries. What 
are those injuries like in the past is a fantastic question. There's other ways like yeah. in this segment you can probably do bioarchaeological evidence to like look for these kinds of injuries in the past in some of these populations. That would give us a really good answer. The data collection, that's where this thing gets wonky, where it, it there, there's a clear, fun question behind this that they're trying to answer, but it doesn't seem like they're answering it. They have all this data, and it seems like they don't know what to do with it. I think it's exactly yeah. fun. Like Looking at this table right here, table five again, like it says stitches, then stitches and fingers, stitches and hands. If these were written in answers in a survey, I bet someone just said I had to get stitches and didn't specify. But someone then said, nine people said I had stitches in my fingers. Like, so maybe that's like, how do you just wrangle all that data, you know? Right. And then cut tendon and fingers. Like, I'd like to see if, I, I mean, maybe this is in the raw data, supplemental data where there's like an explanation. I'd like to know how they got these injuries, like minor cuts to rear end. Did you sit on flakes? Like, were you not paying attention? Like, there's some of these that are like actually industry related injuries. And then there's just like fucking around and finding out injuries where they're not paying attention. Mm-hmm. Especially like, I want to see who of the self reports are injuring themselves. Like, is this, are we getting most of this data of the injuries? Are these coming from the novices and intermediates? That's what I want to know. And that's from, I'm, I'm having a hard time seeing what's is the Is that not a table? No. No, mm. I just love the testicles on this very fun graphic of figure one of just a, a pride colored human, like the Vitruvian body, like I, testicles 0.29%. <laughs> it looks like that jungle frog, you know, that used to be on the cover of the Nat Geo magazine. You know what I'm talking about? It did. Yeah. Um, okay. No injuries to the vagina. The, the male dominated survey. So, you know, I mean, I'm just yeah. saying. David, you had a story that you said you you at least hinted to in the last segment. Yeah, this guy that was teaching me some stuff at Flint Ridge said, like someone asked him, you ever like racked yourself? And he said, oh yeah. He said the worst pain he's ever been in. He, he was sitting in front of like 20 to 30 people and like somebody came and sat down right in front of him and for whatever reason, like he was distracted by them and he just racked himself really hard with a moose billet into the nuts. And he said that he fell over so hard. He was like wincing in pain in front of like 30 people (laughs) trying to do this demonstration. And he said like, never again. And I was like, how'd you recover? And he said, it took like days. So I could see how testicle happens. I've hit myself in the nuts before. It's an accident by kind of not paying attention, but also like things like slip, I guess is how it happens. Like I, I'm holding onto something and then it slips and it like just forces itself right there. I don't know. Or like sitting on a bucket. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just these tables. Like I like figure one, Napringer locations and frequencies. It's like, right. This is predominantly a digit. Like you're using your hands to make stone tools. Of course, you're going to see more injuries. Yeah. Once again, I would like to see this figure replicated by skill level, skill level. Like that's the whole purpose of this, right? It's like, how are we teaching our children? Which they talk about in the discussion. It's like, but you've taken all this data some of which you're not necessarily like like characterizing what these levels are. Like I want to know because of course, right, we know when I was a kid and learned how to ride a bike, you start with training wheels. You take those off and you crash like I crashed a couple times before I got the hang of it. I haven't crashed my bike, just generally bike riding since. Right. Like I totally get 
while you're learning to flint nap, you're going to have injuries. For sure. That makes yeah. sense. And that's what I would have liked to seen from this is like, let's, how do we divide this data by expertise and also by frequency? Like, what do all the grad students look like? What do all the like industrial flint nappers, what do their injuries look like or how long ago those were, right? Like taking all these different injuries, throwing them into the same pot and saying like, here's the results. It's like, okay, if, what if this, like the, the person that split their thumb open what if that's one of the industry guys, but that happened 30 years ago? Like that, that kind of matters. Like when did you get these injuries yeah. at what skill proficiency did you get them? That's going to be a much more meaningful argument to talk about human behavior as it relates to stone tool production than what they've presented here. And that's kind of my issue with this article. Like conceptually, this is a great article. Does it belong in American antiquity? Like one of our top tier journals. I'm on the fence about that. Like this... I am not sure if it belongs in American antiquity because it comes off as not totally baked. Like this is maybe like an over easy egg. Like yeah. some people like it, but some people need a little bit more like consistency in this because I don't know what to do with this data. To me, yeah. this is very much, this isn't answering anything. And that's what I have a problem with because they don't take this data meaningfully and apply it. And they don't look at archaeological investigations. It's very much experimental. So maybe this could have gone in like the Journal of Archaeological Practice. Maybe, but or uh, science. something I was just thinking of. Nature. Yeah, JAS sort of nature. <laughs> it's kind of a framework though, because like no one's done this before in the sense that like if you were to write a paper about like, you know, how many Australopiths or Homo habilis or Homo erecti have lacerations or cuts to their you know finger bones or whatever you can then say like well according to modern nappers of these surveyed x percent had injuries to their finger bone so therefore we could expect to see that much in homo erectus or more so now there's an official american antiquity thing to reference and cite would be my but own i wouldn't even cite this if i did that because like any sort of archaeological data i'm going to get at this i'm going to be able to tell gender i'm going to be able to tell age or sorry i'm going to generally be able to tell biological sex i'll be able to tell age and use those as references for how often they're doing this behavior like this like this is that's just such a weird table production of as we've discussed and, and like i totally understand what you're coming from but like you don't fuck around in American antiquity. It's not, you don't do like conceptual low hanging fruit stuff with even out with, even without results that are meaningful. Yeah. That's, that's the issue with it that I, that I find it's like we surveyed, it's basically, we surveyed 163 people. This is what they said. And here's some cool figures and charts. Yeah. I, I do think this data needs to be out in the world and accessible to people, but I don't, I think the medium in, of, in terms of American antiquity, like this hard hitting journal that's supposed to talk about the cutting edge of like, no pun intended of, of science and what we're learning in archeology. span This doesn't fit that mold to me. Like I want this data out there. I want to be able to look at it and maybe quantify it in my own sort of way. But as it is right now, it is not something that I would use. And their theoretical implications, as you kind of mentioned, Carlton, are not substantiated during this. It's a, it, it is an absolute stretch to say what they're learning from this data set is that people in the past had to like significantly change their habits around flint napping because they would die, which is, a, which is part of their kind of conclusion as a part of this. Okay. Okay. So yeah. I'm looking at something now. No, I, agree. I opened up 
supplemental information. So they have this information of how long you've been napping for. What age did you start napping for? What level do you consider yourself? So there we go. So they have self-reported information. How many times a week do you nap? How long do you nap per session? So like there's data is available that they could have used. I mean, I guess it's there, but yeah, it's there. So it's like we, the three of us could write a, a, a more poignant piece about this article based on their data. Like everything we've just complained about, I just complained about, I, I guess I could go to this and like, this is what this data means when you look at it this, this way. Yeah. See, hold that. How often do you currently end yourself? Very rarely. Only once did I require stitches when I use steel knives, then I cut myself. Hmm. That's the expert. Yeah. That's, that's, that's interesting. And this person, same person, I definitely cut myself more as I was learning to nap. But at the same time, it was not the custom to teach people with clubs. So like there's some, and then usually respondents are like, yes, I've hurt myself. No, of course. Yes, but mostly quarrying. So like there's, there's additional data here that needs to be sussed out that isn't present in these tables and graphs. Something we talked about this summer, I remember it was me and Todd Cervell or me and Spencer. I don't remember. It was at LaPrel. Might have been Jacob actually, just sitting around napping. And like, we kind of just all agreed that people, especially based on the flakes you find at Clovis sites and are their cake sites, like they were very efficient at busting off the proper and like largest flakes possible to get to this, like utilize as much as possible, not just have a bunch of debitage on the floor. That being said, people every day, men and women and probably children as well, had to know how to nap because it's a fundamental survival skill for them to make any tool. And it's something you just get really efficient at. Whereas today, modern neppers, we have so much extra stone to mess with that we have the time to like fuck up and we try to make it look artsy. Whereas for them, it's life, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and so this, if they would apply this data to modern nappers in a, like a, if we go to elementary schools, should we teach flint napping to elementary kids? Maybe that's no, maybe that's where this is applicable. But applying it to the past at this point is like, it's just, they're two different data sets. Like you're saying, like yeah. having to survive and do this every single day is different than doing this for pleasure with buddies and drinking beer. You know, that is, that right. is two different types of people and two different locations. There's just, there's so many variables in that, that I don't think they're really, this is not applicable to the archeological record as we, as we understand it. Yeah, mm-hmm. that that's my issue with it. Like, it's a cool survey. There's better ways this data could have been handled, more meaningful ways and apply it to the archaeological record. But it's just not there. And the way they talk about it, there could have been fatal injuries. It's like, yeah. And people in the past did have medicine. Like, these aren't, you know, primitive, dumbass people that just let things get infected. Like, we've seen this throughout the archaeological record of of group care, basic medicinal practices, knowledge about the local landscape and also like this isn't the only way people are going to hurt themselves like there are plenty of practices in the past from like hunting gathering exploring new landscapes that they can get hurt like this is menial compared compared now if there's an argument in here that they talk about you know like maybe this would have delayed learning for children it's like right as connor mentioned but where's the discussion in that on the modern ethnographic like there's so much data that could come in with a simple search on google to support like, well, the son Bushman, this is when they teach their children how to flint nap. That's what this is missing, which is fine. But this is American antiquity. 
And that's like, this is weird for American antiquity where it's like, there's so much missing from this to make it meaningful. Yeah. This shouldn't have gone in American antiquity. Maybe they were hurting for articles because I, I was just looking like they submitted it in November, revised it in February, and it got published in March. So maybe we just missed a window where we could have just thrown anything we wanted at American Antiquity and got it in. <laughs> David, we could have yeah. got you published real fucking quick. Yeah, but see, here's the thing. Like, it, it takes a lot of work and effort to do that, and I have zero of that. So, like, props to them for getting it published, but also it, it is a little, like, odd of a thing to see in American Antiquity. Maybe we just haven't seen others before like maybe there's an article about like what glue like dries the fastest on on pottery or something my the funniest thing to me though and this is just an american antiquity thing but the sheer amount of citations that are in every sentence which makes it really hard for like non-academics to read any journal but like but how many of them are modern kind of to the point of that like all of this like so many citations to make these statements based on like arbitrary data given by like old men <laughs> there's, there's not a single citation for 2022 there's two citations for 2021 like six citations for 2020 and it's mostly aaron citing himself so they're not even citing like really current lithic manufacturer fucking literature yeah and i'm going to be the devil's advocate and say maybe that's that's the novelty of this paper is that there's there's nothing that's been talked about it so i think there is like a, a beauty to the novelty of it i think oh, the aaron, execution of citing himself like even all the 2019 citations are mostly aaron and his buddies well it's it's gala who wrote the paper so i mean it it's, makes sense to cite somebody because you don't want to plagiarize stuff that's already been said by that guy by aaron. but aaron is his mentor or like aaron's his advisor Hmm. And like we've interviewed people on this podcast that have published on Stone Tool Production within the past couple of years. Like there's this that's what this is like flagging to me is like this isn't someone like there, there's recent literature on this, like on handedness. Like we had Lana on who's published and all of her friends that have talked about Stone Tool Production as it comes to handedness. None of that's here. None of the ethnoarchaeological work is in here. It's it's Met and Aaron's team just throwing out more stuff, citing themselves. And it's just like. But there's there's so like this could have been such a great paper. Yeah. In principle, I would I would agree. I mean, it's the execution that we, we find lacking. I think on that note, we'll take a break and we'll come back and maybe talk about something different. Who knows? We'll be right back. Welcome back to episode 160 of Life and Roots podcast. We have been discussing a paper by a person and we have beaten that horse dead and given our opinions. But I wanted to ask an adjacent question to this kind of study. Thinking of like modern flint nappers and kids and getting people introduced to archaeology, etc. Like what do you think is the appropriate age and or is there an appropriate age to start teaching students, kids like flint napping, experimental archaeology, things like that because i think they can be meaningful if you catch them at those young ages but there's like a danger to them my friend's kid just graduated kindergarten and she like naps with him she's napped with them for like two years like just tries she just smashes it with a billet but uh, she's in there i noticed like when i did the flint napping thing for those classes the injuries occur when I'm not directly with a student. So like if I'm guiding an individual student, like how to hold a hay, watch your hands. Like if I, like I imagine if like a parent to their child who's meticulously watching them to do it right, 
those injuries don't happen. It's like when I move down the line and someone's not paying attention and they bash, they put their finger in between the core and the hammer stone, that's when the injuries happen, right? Yeah. So I think there's also kind of like a social, like what's the situation? Like when I had a flint napper at Hellgap, like walk me through how to make a Clovis point. I didn't hurt myself once because they're like, hey, you're holding this wrong. You need to hit it right here. Like you're going to slice your hand if you do it this way. So there is that like knowledge that's being passed down in a transformative way in an educational way versus you have 30 students and like there's a bunch of hammerstones out and you're not paying attention to everyone. That's where the injuries happen. And like the injuries that I've always sustained, it's like when I was fucking unsupervised and like not thinking like the Chaco incident or like, and most of the time I slice my hand open, it's when I'm with obsidian. Yeah. Like I'll get church stuck every now and then, but generally it's the obsidian that's really lacerating me. And I'm wearing the goggles. I'm wearing the gloves, like generally wearing long pants as you're supposed to do. Granted is that did glasses and goggles exist in the past? No. So there is that danger, but generally people are wearing long pants and covered shoes. I imagine moccasins or we discussed like those Inuit snow masks, like the like if it was heavy debris, like with obsidian, maybe something like that. Or another guy and I were talking about just long hair. Put your long hair in front of you, you have way less likely of getting a thing flown into your eye. Yeah, but I mean, no way to know. But I think they were good. Like I, modern nappers who were good just don't hurt themselves as often. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was just thinking of this like in the context. So there's this thing every year called the Wyoming Archaeology Fair where they have a bunch of different stations and they have folks come out, kids, adults, old people, and they teach them archaeological stuff or different skills, flint napping, ceramics, there's soapstone carving, just a variety of different things. And I was thinking, I mean, so there needs to be this ratio of like advisors, supervisors to like novices kids going on so i think that seems like a very important thing you can't just like have like you said like 30 kids smashing rocks together without some sort of supervision yeah because i mean you want you want kids that age to get inspired to do archaeology and have fun doing it like i think that's important but safety is also important yeah david if you have a colleague who's teaching his kindergartner how to do it and they're doing it safely perfect Mm-hmm. I mean, like for archaeology students, they're learning generally in the archaeology methods course, intro to archaeology. I know there's community colleges that teach it and sometimes even high schools in the Southwest. It all just depends on, you know, the level of the teacher, the willingness of the student to pay attention and also the class size. I'm like I'm good at being able to show, like I can show students how to make a flake. Pretty useless beyond that. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's the point though. You just want to show them how, how it works and you can yeah. infer from there. But are there a bunch of kids at those nappings, or is it just kind of mostly? Yeah, like there's people who have their kids with them, and then there's obviously like parents that come like to just see it, and they bring their kids. And a kid sat down with my friend, and he sat and taught him for a bit while the dad was watching and asking questions. But I mean, it's really hard to teach everything about flip napping for five minutes with a kid sitting right next. You know, like hit this. I will. I do want to mention something because because it's relevant. When I did the bison experiment with Devin in Montana and Donnie, you know, we had stone tools that needed to be resharpened. And like we relied on Devin and Donnie to do that. Like they were kind of our sharpeners, like in terms of like the group dynamic, because they knew how to do it. And I don't recall either of them getting injured. You know, they were the designated sharpeners while we were Mm -hmm. the cutters and the slicers. Or like in there was a point where Lana and Autumn 
we would take the big hunks of meat off and they would process them by muscle groups. So we had this assembly line of people like actively working within a stone tool environment in a archeological context and an ethnographic context of processing a, a killed bison. Like that's a different kind of context to lithic production than like a nap in or like just sitting there flint napping. Mm-hmm. Right. Does that make sense? Like, I don't know where I'm going with that, but other than like we had two professionals that were doing it, no one was getting injured, but like we weren't all flint napping, but we were still using stone tools. Right. Like, I mean, I think you're hitting, you're hitting at like a division of labor thing and, and that there's special specialties across groups. You have exactly. to specialize in something and not everyone's going to be hitting rocks all the time. So I think that is an important thing to talk about because not how many novices will be actually hitting rocks together in the past, like fundamentally. Or how many, like if you're like a family and I got like my three, my three young sons and my two varied beefy daughters out there am i the one making the stone tools while they're cutting you know that's that's the division of labor that connor just hit on like Mm -hmm. people are going to use their strengths in those environments and so generally i wasn't even used like devin and donnie they like donnie his fidget spinner is this like chert point this his chert cutter that he's made that has this like beautiful like crescent side notch in it and he was using that and he'd sharpen that i was using flakes but if my flake got fucked up or dulled, it wouldn't get fucked up. Like Devin and Donnie would make me another good flake, like specifically prep a flake that was good for slicing rather than me just whacking a, a core until I got something I liked. So even then just to make a flake that was good, they could do that and I would get in there and, and do my thing. Right. So yeah, the division of labor hitting people's specialties and not everyone's going to be a fantastic stone producer when you're in it, even a hunting gathering environment of like a band of what, like a dozen to two dozen people, you're going to have your flint nappers, your it, you know, in part of that, you also have your hunters. You also have the people that are more skilled for other things and are in an actual environment where those industries are being performed. Yeah. There is a division of labor. And I, I think that's something um, we had a student here at the University of Wyoming do that kind of analysis using is it HRF, human relation files or whatever it is. It's an ethnographic database looking at fire and who use fire, when they use fire, what the method, et cetera. And you could do the same thing with stone tool production in the past or tool production in general and really get at these kind of specifics. So is it, is it a male dominated industry? Um, what is the average age of someone doing this? When do they do this? And is it situational? Is it always one person napping, et cetera? I think you can do these kinds of analyses and really have something meaningful to add to our understanding in the past. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that's, that's something that that should be explored and could be done by these colleagues to kind of supplement this. No. These, these I folks. mean, David, you're the one that goes into Nappins. I've never been to one. I mean, what's like the sociocultural environment of a modern day Nappin like? I just made a full video on that. I'm editing it right now. And I will say it's very white. And I look for this because I, I just wonder. I don't see one female Napper. Like maybe one or two knows how to do it. Or I should say one who identifies as a woman. Like I've seen them sit down and do it with their husband or their boyfriend that's there, but I've never seen one set up and sell napped stuff. One thing I have noticed though, almost everyone there did not know flint napping was a thing and they found an arrowhead on their grandfather or father's property as a kid and were very intrigued by it and wondered how they made it and then hit it with a rock and broke it and then realized, oh, that's how it works. And then they go and like figure it out from there. And then when Facebook came around, they were all like, oh, this is like a whole thing people do. And that's like when the nap-ins really popped off, which I find fun because like 
I mean, I think Connor and I talked about this last episode, but the or a few a few back. It's just like people have a fascination with stone tools, and like that's not going to go away. I don't think. Well, the social networking aspect of that too is kind of cool. How that stuff spreads. Have you only done these nappins in like uh, kind of the East Coast, South so far? Or you did a little mid- bit of Midwest stuff too, right? Uh, they were in Ohio. I've napped with people in Colorado. Based on like the people I know that do YouTube videos and like that Flint nap and stuff, it's all pretty much either survival people or like country guys, I would say. But I mean, I don't, I don't know every Flint napper in the world. I thought, um, David, you asked Carlton an interesting question in our group chat. Is there like an indigenous napping group, people, societies, et cetera? Not that I know of. Not that I know of either. I had to think about that. Like I know indigenous people that do Flint nap, but like there's kind of a culture of, like even at powwows, I've seen like these mountain men show up and shed up stuff and my experience with them has always been like not great because they, they state say shit like, you know, if it wasn't for us white people, Indians would have forgot this kind of skills. And it's like, I don't know if that's the same at Nappins, but I do have heard horror stories of tribes who to bring in nappers and these whatever nappers they brought in in whatever context haven't been the most like polite or respectful guests and kind of have have perpetuated this like, well, I'm teaching you your lost skill type of shit. Like I haven't seen a huge interest. Like I know like my Tippo and people in my tribe are like interested in it, but they're very wary of trying to find some white dude that's going to teach him because of that same attitude. And like, it's like, well, what are we going to just find another dickhead? Who knows? You know, at the end of the day, it's also like there's other shit for Indian people that need to work on. It's yeah. it's like one of those socioeconomic things of like who can afford to, to go and look for rocks and then bring them yeah. home and and create them when there's other other. That's things. another thing too. Like you have to have private land that has a source on it to get rock or you have to order flat rate boxes by like $100 each to get rock unless you just use flakes you find or bottles like glass you know yeah there's there's an economic angle to that and having the time to teach yourself something like this is it's a significant investment yeah I would love to go to these nappins and just ask nappers like what their interaction has been with like indigenous populations like have you reached out to indigenous groups like what do you find fast like i think there's a whole nother survey that i could you know just put a bunch of fucking tables together and publish in american antiquity and you know do something <laughs> real with that that math without curating it with so fucking ever because that that would be interesting to me is like because i actually really don't know when david asked me that question i was like i don't i really don't know but I, i'm actually kind of fascinated to learn like go to napping and just like you know, what's your relationship with indigenous cultures? Like, how did you find this? Okay, have you, you know, like, what's, what yeah, is this Yeah, it's exactly like? what I was asking in the video, because a guy, uh, I mean, let's talk about it in the video, but to get into it, last year a guy came up and said, like, with his kids, he was indigenous, and he was like, that's our heritage, like, to his kids. And I kind of sat there and was like, I talked to him, and I was like, oh, I have a Pawnee friend. And it's just like, it's basically like saying, like, oh, you're English? I have a Ukrainian friend. <laughs> like, it's like the same thing. And I sat there for like a year was like, what did he mean by that? Like, was he sad? Was he remorseful? Was he angry at me? And like, or is he just proud to like teach his kids that? And I didn't know. And I was talking with a friend a few weeks ago about this. And she said like, maybe don't like be as defensive and like wonder, or not, not like, I can't remember how she phrased it, but essentially like, that's him processing his trauma and like explaining that to another generation of children 
whose heritage is now being performed by white people on the land that they used to call home. And I was like, oh, God damn. And she was like, yeah, it's like that. <laughs> and I was like, oh, fuck. And like, it's just weird. And this year when I went back to the Napa and I was like, I don't see a single indigenous person. Like one guy said he had some Choctaw in him or his grandfather is Cherokee, but like no one outwardly identifying as indigenous and that's their napping thing. And I was just like, that is a bummer. So something I miss out on and I'm wondering is like, I, I can learn the physics and how to nap from different people, but what about like the spiritual stuff behind napping or like what times of year you use certain rock or just shit like that. Or like what kind of spirit is in the rock, like things like that or all that kind of stuff in those traditions and oral stories of napping are not taught at a, a white napping, <laughs> I would say. I mean, it made me reflect when you asked that question, like looking at the different people in my community at large that are engaged in some side of some sort of craft production. We have like one pipe maker. We have one traditional bow maker. We don't have any potters. We don't have any lithicists. And like we know pot like we were farmers, you know, and we, we've just seen within the past decade a huge resurgence of growing of ancestral crops. That are we using like bison scapula hose yet? No, but we do have a lot of people that are engaged in beadwork, silversmithing, and like engaged in contemporary regalia production. Yeah. Like that's where a lot of that effort goes to. Now, I would find it fascinating, and but part of some of those traditions, it's like our ancestral stone tools that we'd use would have come out of Smoky Hill Jasper in Kansas, Hartville Uplift in eastern Wyoming and and mm -hmm. the Black Hills, like those where we got our stones. And we're also not using like the ancestral dogwood from our home. Like there's there's like another part of it where it's like we're kind of displaced. So we can't actually engage in that practice because we're no longer in Nebraska and Kansas and have access to those raw materials, which are a very important part of that construction, as you were saying, or even like the fletchings that we use. Yeah. You know, a lot of Pawnee fletchings were eagle, like golden eagle feathers. Like we can't really get our hands on those anymore. And if we do, it takes like seven years from the Eagle repository. And I don't, and usually those go to regalia. Like we don't actually That's use those from, I guess now it'd be Turkey feathers, but like I was always fascinated in trying to make golden Eagle fetching. So there's like a whole aspect that you were hitting on David of like, well, what is, how do, how do a displaced people engage in a practice in which locality and geographic culture or cultural geography is very important to that industry? Yeah. And you, you bring up the thing about like beadwork and regalia and like uh, another thing I thought of while I was there and Jacob brought this up too a while ago that he, he wouldn't sell points that he makes because it's appropriation in a sense. And like when I was there, I was like, while flint napping is, and that's what I, I talked with that friend about was like flint napping is a world heritage. So like, it's not like white people can't do it, but I wouldn't sit there and sell indigenous beadwork or like indigenous Cherokee regalia and like profit off of it. So why would I sell a Clovis point or a turkey tail or an archaic point? And I was wondering and wrestling that whole time, at what point is it just a craft, just like you're selling a hat or, you know, pants <laughs> that like doesn't necessarily have to be indigenous. What, at what level is it? Are you crossing a barrier into this is indigenous culture and I'm profiting off of it? Or at what level is it just, you're making an, a point out of rock, you know? Right. It's hard. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge, like, I, I don't even know how to process that kind of stuff. You know, we've had people engaged in indigenous culture in one way, shape or form on the show. I mean, that fuck, we're archaeologists. That's all we do for the most part. We've had some European folks on, but like, 
Yeah, like if someone came up with like a, a Levawa point or like that, those like European industries, Neanderthal industry, like, yeah, that's like a can of worms that it's, you know, the end of segment three. I don't know if we can process, but those are like really good questions for our audience to grapple with. And, you know, send us an email to liferuinspodcast at gmail.com with your thoughts over like, are, is selling paleo Indian points in the Americas by non-indigenous people some form of cultural appropriation? Send us your thoughts. Let us know how, what your thoughts are on that, on that topic. And that same sort of thing, uh, leave us a review on iTunes, buy our merch, do all the things that we tell you to do every time at this part of the, of, of the episode. Yep. If you're listening on the All Shows feed, please uh, subscribe to our podcast individually. And uh, yeah, with that, we're out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at A Life in Ruins Podcast. And you can also email us at A Life in Ruins Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. Connor, do you have a joke? Yeah, it's bad. And they're all not great. <laughs> <laughs> what did Yoda say when he saw himself in 4K? HD, am I? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. That's pretty good. That's good. Thank you, Connor. <laughs> this episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. And was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.